Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Scripture reading is from Genesis 9, verse 1 to 17. That God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their bloods be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tracy. Right back. Good morning, and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. 
We've been going through the book of Genesis as a church because many of the questions that I believe we're fighting right now in our culture, questions about purpose, questions about meaning, questions about uh, sexuality and gender, identity, questions that we're not just fighting in our culture. I think there's other cultures. Putin in Russia is pitting their cultural values with Western cultural values. Everybody's fighting about these questions. But I would argue that their root actually has deeper questions beneath them. Questions essential such as, what does it even mean to be human? What does it even mean to, to, to be alive? What's actually wrong with us? And what's going to put us right? As we read Genesis, what we discover here, what we've been discovering together the past couple weeks, is that the answer to these questions inform how we're going to actually live out our life. They answer the other questions that we're going through. Some of us here might not actually come from church backgrounds, and therefore uh, this stuff is new, but I think it's important for us to see that the foundations of the Christian faith reside here. For those of you who come from church backgrounds, I think it's important to acknowledge that often we don't have a deep enough understanding of these things, and that's a lot of the reasons why we have the disagreements of definitions we have today. We, don't, we haven't embodied them ourselves, and that's why we ourselves have these same questions. And so we have to ask ourselves, the key question to ask ourselves is, how does, for at least today, how does Noah and the flood, how does that actually affect how we live our lives. What does that look like? I think we see it in three key areas. Let's look at, from this passage, how the world matters, how your actions matter, and then how does his inaction matter most? All right, we're going to look at three things today. How the world matters, how do your actions matter, and then how does his inaction matter most? So first, the world matters. Now, before we get there, I need to address this. Some of you are already pretty skeptical, probably, of, of the flood. Um, a lot of folks have uh, studied this in colleges and, and in different spaces, and people uh, see it as a, as a myth. And um, the reason why is, is scientists point this out. If you took every last drop of moisture and, um, in the air, if you took all the rain that's happening right now, not just here, but in the entire world, and just dropped it on the earth, it would only raise the ocean by about one inch. And if you just melted all the polar ice caps, if you took all the streams and lakes and you, you, you emptied them, you would only have the ocean rise about 246 feet, which would not be enough to cover over all the land. And then you have the other problem, like um, when it comes to saying how all the animals were inside the ark, how did the kangaroos get from Australia? That's what I want to know. How'd they get to a, 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 a box ark in the Middle East? So there's all these kind of questions, and uh, personally, I think that we need to leave open the possibility for uh, a worldwide flood. God is God, and he could. And yet, it's also probably important to point out that in Hebrew, the word for earth, the word for world, is actually the same word for land and region. So actually, the Bible, um, it is a valid and safe translation to say, when every time it says the whole earth was flooded, actually... Another translation that's valid is the whole 
uh, uh, region, the whole land was flooded. Potentially arguing for a localized flood. Because the known earth, the known world at the time, lived in the ancient Near East. It was uh, Tigris and Euphrates. And there's actually scientific evidence that uh, on top of these mountains in that area, there are fossil uh, records of shells, of, of um, ocean life. So there's evidence of, of a localized flood, credible evidence, that this text, talking about how the known world was wiped out, could be true. Now, of course, the question then to ask yourself is, okay, if, even if there was a localized flood there, where God wipes out humanity, how does that actually show us that the world matters? How does it? I think we need to go back to the, look at the text. What's happened in Genesis 9 is at this point, the flood has happened, the 40 days and 40 nights, the waters are receding. God has uh, revealed where Noah should make land, find land. He's come out, and now he's having a conversation with him. And he's giving him charges. In the first verse, it says God blesses them, and he starts giving them the same charge that he gave to Adam and Eve. He wants to continue the original point of humanity to be fruitful and multiply. But then the kicker comes in verse 9. Skip down to verse 9. And what you see here is that when God is establishing his covenant, what we've been saying all along, covenant week after week is another word for promise. When God creates promises in this text, who's he making that promise with? Look closely. In verse 9, it says... I now establish my covenant. I'm now making this promise. What he's about to promise is with you and with your descendants and with every creature that's ever existed. And if, just to make sure that we're listening, he repeats this. In verse 12, he says this again, right? This is a sign of covenant I'm making with you and with every living creature. And then he does it again in verse 13 and again in verse 16. The repetition is important because when the Bible repeats itself, it's saying this is important. And this is, by the way, the first explicit covenant God makes where he, he uses this language. And what it's saying is, I'm not, not, I'm not just making a promise with humans. I'm making promises to every possible creature and through, throughout all the generations of those creatures. And therefore, it's going to last forever. And so, I mean, just the implication of this matters big time. Because a lot of us are just sort of like, so why does that matter? Let me try to help you with contrast. What is the view, the prevailing scientific view in our culture right now about the world? About the relationship to how the world operates with each other? The prevailing view is this. The world was made through an evolutionary process that was random. There was no divine force behind it. There was no reasoning behind it. So it comes from a meaningless process. And one day, as we've studied stars far away, that we know stars disappear, we know they, they burn out. One day, our star will burn out. And when it does, everything that we thought mattered won't matter anymore. Everything that's ever existed will no longer exist. So the prevailing view is that the future of this world is nothingness. That you've come from nothing... And you're going to go to nothing, and yet somehow you have to say that there's something here now. That's the view. 
Now, most religions, if you want to, if you want to have other views, most religions also, if you study them, you talk about the, you know, the future of the physical, tangible world. Most religions say, hey, it's about escaping the world. Let's get out. Let's go away. Or, if you, or some religions, such as Buddhism, says the world, there is no such thing as the world. The, the whole point of reality is to realize that. And so now, when you pit those different views against this one, this becomes actually even more profound. Because what this is saying is God actually believes the world matters. He's making a promise to the entire world that I care about the world, that I, 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 and I want the world to continue for all generations, and therefore you should care about it too. There, therefore, Christians are not pointed, this text is not pointing Christians away from creation, it's pointing Christians further into it. Because this promise is saying, I'm, I'm not just here, Noah and descendants, for, you, for them to, to thrive. I want the entire world to thrive too. So for those of you right now who believe strongly about the world and taking care of it, you have even more reasons to do it because God cared about it before you even existed. And if you don't really care about the world right now, I think we have po- very, a very powerful resource in our hands to do so that we should care about our climate we should care about our trees we should care about our our environment because god cared about it first i also find it very interesting most secular people when they're trying to encourage people to care about the environment you know what uh, argument they say they say this they say care about the environment because this is the only planet we have and if you get at the root of that you know that is care about the environment for your own self-interest, which I always find fun, funny and fascinating because the reason why we ruin our environment is usually out of self-interest. So if the reason why we ruin it is out of self-interest, the reason that why you should care about it is out of self-interest, that means in any particular moment, when it's not in our self-interest to take care of it, we're not going to. This is different. God is saying, I made it, I love it. I want, I I made those trees. I designed those bugs, which by the way, I don't, I personally think mosquitoes, the whole biting thing, I don't, I think that's the product of the fall. They're going to disappear when Jesus comes back. So not all bugs, don't worry about them. But the good bugs, I made the good bugs. I love those bugs and I'm redeeming them. And that means this, if he's not just redeeming individuals, but all of creation, and this is important, the implications is, is that he's not trying to take you out of this world. He's trying to put you further into it. And if he's not just redeeming you, but he's redeeming all things, then he doesn't just care about your your individual souls. He cares about poverty. He cares about um, systemic structures. He cares about death in and of itself. I don't want to just save you there. God is saying, I want to clothe you and feed you and fix things so that when we care, put it this way, when Christians care about the poor, they, they sh- we should not be doing it because, oh, it's a nice thing to do, or, oh, because I want to convert them. We care about the poor because we want wholeness and, and balance, not just in the souls, but the, but the entire humanity and the, and the entire created order. Because that's what, when, when God says, I love the world, when he says, I care about it, he's saying the structures and nature, everything. 
And I guess before we move on, I guess this is the question. Do you have that bigger bigger picture? Do you live in light of that? See, one of the questions we're asking as a culture is, what's the purpose of humanity? And God is loudly saying, all of creation. Your purpose is, is he's redeeming all things. And are you ready to participate in that process of the created order? There is nothing larger and bigger than this. The world matters, number one. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. Number two, your actions matter too. Go back to verse five. And there's this interesting part of this text where God very clearly demands an accounting for your actions. He says, I will demand an accounting. I can't get any more stark than that. Because why? In verse 6, he reminds Noah that killing is not just wrong, but he says, it's not just wrong because I say so. It's wrong because you are made, humans are made in the image of God. Which means every drop of human blood is so precious to him. It's so important to him. It's so significant. He can't let any action against that lifeblood to continue. It would be wrong for him. And therefore he says, our actions, your actions, demand an accounting. And this, therefore... This matters. Your actions matter. But you have to put yourself in the, in the history of what's happened here so far. God makes humanity in Genesis 1. Genesis 3, everything falls apart. Genesis 4, Cain starts, kills Abel. And by Genesis 6, if you go to verse 5 there, things have gotten so bad, God says this. I mean, the text says this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the, of the human heart was evil. All the time, and the Lord was grieved. And the very next verse, that's where God says in, in chapter 6 that things had gotten so bad, I can't let humans keep doing this. I'm going to start over with Noah. Now, I have to point this out. Ten years ago, up to, up to about ten years ago, most New Yorkers would have been highly offended with this. Because what right does God have to do that? But I think what's happened, there's been a shift culturally in the past ten years our social consciousness about justice has increased to the degree where we want justice so bad. We want an accounting for the, for, for the actions of the offending party. We want them to pay for what they've done so much that when wrongs happen, we can't just let evil exist. We have to stop it. And, may, and what's happened, I believe, I, I think people are starting to realize, wait a second, Potentially, what's happening here is not an overreaction by God. That when we 
zoom out just for a second and we look at the brokenness of life, I'm not talking about just wars that are happening in another part of the world. I'm talking about not just greed or pride, but just the everyday handling that we have for each other. The death by a thousand cuts. They're small. But what God is saying here in this text, since I would demand an accounting, he's saying, I see it all. And every injustice, who, says, look, look at the text again, whoever sheds blood. And we know in, from the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is speaking there, he says, you know, murder, the shedding of blood, where does it start? It starts with even the idea of it. Which means every sin, every wrongdoing, every bad motive, every hidden evil desire, whether it's manifested in some sort of disaster or it's still buried in some form of hidden cancer that's just waiting to erupt. Those are all still inside of us, and God is too loving and too just to allow it to continue. Because if he doesn't, as we see from the text, as you see the progression, it just gets worse. We've seen it wreak havoc in life. Now, if we allow that, I think it leads to a bunch of interesting questions for us. First of all, if you don't believe in God, if you don't know what you believe, the problem we have then is that in the world right now, if there is no God, then the person or the group that gets to define what is good and bad tends to be in most democracies, whoever's the majority. The problem with that process means if you're a minority in a majority culture, you tend not to get justice. We've seen it happen in America. We've seen it happen in all other cultures across the world, throughout all time. Go to any particular major civilization, find the majority culture, find the minority one, and you'll see oppression. If you look at these places, minority, minorities and majority cultures can't get justice because who gets to define evil? I'll give you another example. Will Smith and Chris Rock. Who was right? There's a whole debate going on right now Because was Will Smith justified to go and slap Chris Rock at the Oscars? Now, the prevailing view right now in our culture, if you read enough of the articles, is Will Smith was wrong. Because he's he's allowing violence. He's he's allowing violence to continue. And he's he's he because he did it publicly, he's affecting other people. So most people are saying Will Smith is wrong, but you know what? There are a ton of shame and honor cultures in the world that look at what Will Smith did and said, no, he was right. He was defending his wife's honor. He was defending his own honor. So who gets to decide who, who was, who's right and wrong there? If we just leave it to majority cultures, then the problem there is there's no hope for the world. We're going to just endlessly defa- debate and, and, and just make bald assur- assertions against each other. But if there is a right and wrong, and there's a judge who actually knows it and actually executes it, then the question is, is what hope do we have for ourselves? I'll try to make this more stark. If there was no reason for the flood, unless there was an utter human sinfulness that needed to be dealt with, If there was no reason for it, then we shouldn't have had it. But if there was a reason for the flood because of human 
sinfulness. Then the question isn't why there was a flood in the first place. The real question I'm asking myself is why are there not more floods? Right? If it was just, if it was valid and justified and we see all the brokenness, why are we not seeing them happen more often? See, if, if floods clean the house, if floods are valid forms of judgment and justice for the wages of sin is death, because I'm going to have an accounting for the lifeblood that's spilled. And if God isn't just right and good and therefore needs to fix the world, then the question, the million-dollar question is this, how can he fix sin and wipe away sin without wiping away the ones who have done the sin? That's the question. God has made a promise to the whole earth to care for and love it. But then look what happens in verse 11. He goes off and now promises, I will never again fix it in this way. Which then creates this narrative tension. Okay, he loves the world, he's going to fix it, but he's not going to do it in this way. What way is he going to do it then? The answer, I think, is in our last point. How God's inaction matters most. How he do- what he doesn't do. And the answer that the text gives us is that the sign that's given to us, the symbol that's given to us, shows us how God's going to execute this. We all in our, every culture has symbols, right? In, in modern American culture, we have rings for, it's a symbol of, of the vows and promises that people make in marriage. Inside the church, we have baptism. It's a sign and seal of, of joining and being part of the church. We have communion. What, 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 the cup and the bread, these are symbols of Jesus's actions and the promises he's made to us. The same thing is happening right here. Go to verses 12 and 13. God says, this, this is the sign of the covenant. And 13, what is it? I have set my rainbow in the clouds. And then he says it again in 14 and 16. Three times, he says, this is the sign. And rainbows are actually our great signs, aren't they? Because where do rainbows actually show up? They show up in storms. Rainbows show up. Not when things are perfectly sunny, not when things are beautiful, but when the clouds cover, when darkness brings itself, when it rains. And yet what happens with a rainbow is through the clouds, when it's at its darkest time, when light comes through, there's radiance and beauty and color. Because what's happening there, God is saying this. He's saying the promise for you and I we're going to only be able to behold it. We're only going to be able to see it when things look the worst. When things look bad. In the storms of your life, when you aren't sure if we're going to be able to weather the storm. When you aren't sure if God actually cares about you. When you aren't sure he has your best interest in mind. How can we be sure? The promise. The promise of his inaction. He says, look at the sign. And if you look carefully, this rainbow in Hebrew is actually not a rainbow. It's, it's actually the, it, the, the Hebrew word is the word for a, a weapon, a bow and arrow, a, a war bow, a battle bow. And if you put it that way, then what God is actually saying this, he's saying, hey, see my battle bow that's been laid up in the heavens. See, verse 13, I have set my battle bow in the clouds. 
And what's that? What he's saying is that's the promise. The promise to what? To verse 11, to not destroy life. Not to destroy life, how? Through the battle bow. Um, during COVID, uh, the first summer, I was looking for childcare. And so I um, went on a road trip with my kids and we ended up at one point in, um, at a farm in the south. Uh, and there was a shed on this farm. Again, you're like, why is Michael on a farm? Because we were just trying, I was trying to get a, find other people to help me take care of my kids. We're, we were at, there was a shed, and in the back of the shed, there was a compound bow and some arrows. I did what I would always do, is I said, hmm, that's interesting. So I took out that bow and arrow, went outside. And I don't know if you've seen a compound bow. These things are not just a piece of wood and some string. There's these pulleys and multiple strings so that when you pull it, it, it compounds the power. And I didn't know how far it would go, so I pulled it back, and I, sh- I aimed it straight up to see how far, because I, I, I could see it. There was thickets all around. I didn't want to shoot it into um, the, fi- the, the, the wood so that I didn't hit any animal or creature. Um, so, I shot it str- so I shot it straight up, because I wanted to see how far it would go. You know what happened? It, it, it was a cloudy day. It went straight up. I lost sight of it, and I was pretty sure because of the wind, it wasn't going to come straight back down. But um, I decided I shouldn't keep doing that. So I laid my battle bow up. I stopped shooting it. That's what God is saying here. He's saying, I won't break out my bow of judgment anymore. And so what this text is really saying is, is do, you, do you and I, do we live in that assurance? Do we live in light of the fact that God has made a promise to you that whatever might be happening in your life right now, it can't be because he's trained his bow and arrow on you. That it can't be because he's saying, I have you in my sights and there is a, 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 a I'm, I'm coming after you. Like, it can't be that. Because he's promised us that he won't do that. But if he's not going to judge us, if he's not going to actually fix creation this way, and his battle bow has been laid up, then how, the question, the million dollar question that you should be asking is then how will things ever be fixed? And the sign is the seal in this case. Because what is the sign of the rainbow? Every single rainbow that's ever been made, the arc of it is pointing up towards heaven. It is not inverse, it's not pointing down, it's pointing up. Just like when I had that bow and arrow, I was pointing it straight up because the, the bow was formed in that direction. What God is essentially saying there is, the next time I pour out my anger, it's not going to be on you. It's going to be on me. That I will be the one to bear the wrath. See, what's so amazing about this, even at the very beginning of creation, God already knew how he was going to have to fix things. The ne- that, that I will be the one to bear my own wrath, that God can promise that there's not, going to be no more floods in your life, ultimately. That there's going to be no more, um, pro- there's going to be no more hurt, ultimately. That he's going to not destroy us, because the next arrow of death is going to hit him first. And that is exactly what happens. Because what happens centuries later, when Jesus Christ is on that cross, you know what happens? clouds cover the storm rolls in and the arrow hits Jesus we get the rainbows because he gets the arrows 
He took the arrows so that we get the rainbows. Play that out. If, if you've put your trust in Jesus, then God will never, ever aim his arrows at you. He will never, ever, ever ultimately condemn you anymore. And if you don't believe me, you say, prove it. Go back to our text again. This is, people miss this all the time. When he's saying this is the sign, what it, who is it the sign really for? It says here in verse 15, I will remember, I will remember my covenant. Look at verse 16. Whenever the rainbow appears, I will see it and remember. This is amazing. Yes, the rainbow is for you to see, but he's saying it's actually for me. In other words, God is saying, I need to remember. Now, of course, God's not saying I forget. He's not, he doesn't forget. He's saying, when I see that rainbow, it is so precious to me. I am going to delight in it so much. I'm going to never forget it. And you say, why does that matter? It matters because you and I forget every single day. But what God is saying right here is, I don't forget. I do and I will remember. When you forget to live in light of these promises, what this is saying is he doesn't forget. Even better, he's made these promises to you and I here, and he's accomplished them on the cross so that even when we do forget, the promise is not affected. That you receive this promise, whatever it means to believe in Jesus, it's not dependent on you remembering that every single day of your life. It's dependent on him remembering it. And that's, friends, that I can't make grace any more real to you than that. That when you're forgetful, when your mind wanders, when you're in doubt of his love, when you don't believe he actually cares about you, this is saying God still remembers. I will remember. The hope of this promise is not how well today you will remember. It's not if your whole life you've forgotten It's based on how well he remembered. And we know he did remember. And we know he did from this text because of what Jesus did when he came and lived and died for you. So go back to those original questions. What's the foundation for identity? He remembered. What's the foundation for your security in life? That he remembered. And therefore, what's the ground for our certainty to be able to live and go out in the world? That he remembered the promises even when I don't remember them. So ask yourself this. Do you forget? He doesn't. Do you wonder if he loves you? He does not wonder if he loves you. You and I forget, but he can't forget because our lives are graven on his hands. He has a memory of them. Of nailed for his commitment. So come to him in any condition. Come to him in the storms of your life, in the tiredness, in the hurt. He can handle it even if you've forgotten him your whole life. His promise is still there to you. Last thing I'll say is this. In 1882, there was a hymn writer named George Matherson whose fiance left him at the altar because she discovered that he was going blind. And she said, I don't want to be married to that kind of brokenness. I don't, want to, I don't want to see that that you can't see. And so on that night, he wrote a song. This hymn goes like this. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. 
I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel that the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. That I, the more the tearlessness is coming, it seeketh me through pain. I cannot close my heart to thee, so I trace that rainbow through the rain. Friends, trace that rainbow through the rain. You know what rainbow, you know what really rainbows are, right? It's just white light cut through a prism. That means there's actually rainbows everywhere right now. You just can't see it. But if we could trace it, if we could remember it, if we could make that ever present in our hearts, we'd be able to handle the people who leave us. We'd be able to handle the brokenness of the world. We'd be able to handle whatever came our way. And guess what? If we did that, we would be able to love creation in a more profound way. We'd be able to love each other in a more profound way. Because this place is not going to end in nothingness. He made it. He loves it. And we don't have to discover our identity. We, we can just recover it in him. Let's remember that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to trace the rainbow through the rain. I think our, we forget. Help us to, the rainbow is proof that you, we, help us to remember that you remembered. It's proof that you have. Help us to see that we don't have to do what culture is telling us. We don't have to discover our identity, that today I'm this and tomorrow I'm that. No, we can root ourselves in your love for us. You made a promise. And, therefore, and we know, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everybody in this room is at a different place. Father, everybody in this room has, has different struggles. Help us to see the rainbow through the rain. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.